0: Hey ghouls and gals, thanks for tuning in. I'm Cat Commander. If I haven't given you a fear of highways already, here's another grueling tale. As a trigger warning, there is a lot of rape and sexual assault. There is also violence involving children. Let's jump in. Today, we're encountering evil with the freeway phantom. During the 1970s, in Washington, D.C., young black girls were getting snatched while walking home alone. And on April 25th, 13-year-old Carol Denise Spinks was at her home with her identical twin when her mother stepped out to go visit an aunt. Before she left, she reminded the two girls not to open the door for strangers and they are instructed not to leave the house. Carol was known as shy, but a jokester as her and her twin Carolyn were known to play pranks on people and try to confuse them because they look so much alike. While at home, they get a knock on the door. When they look out the window, it's their older sister that had moved out. One of the girls opens the door and her sister explains that she is visiting some friends in the area. The older sister, who is around 24, asks one of the girls to run to the 7-Eleven, just a half mile away from their home and just over the border to Maryland. Both of them say no, because their mom again told them not to go outside and not even to open the door. So they shut the door and continued to watch TV. The older sister continues knocking on the door, which eventually leads to her banging. Carol opens the door once again and gives into her sister's plea to fetch the bread and soda she needs from the store. So I do find it strange that her sister wouldn't go get her own things. Like As I mentioned before, she's 24 years old and Carol's only 13, and she's actually super small for her age, she's under five feet and under 100 pounds at 13 years old. But while she was on the way to the store, she runs right into her mom, which her mom is super pissed, like, didn't I just tell you to stay home and you're out here alone? Carol explains to her that her older sister sent her, and her mom agrees to watch her walk to the 7-Eleven, because again, it's really that close. Her mom then tells her to hurry up and not to stop anywhere else on the way home. Carol's mom watches Carol walk right into the 7-Eleven and then goes back to what she was doing. After some time passes, the sisters at home are like, where the hell is Carol? And they're starting to grow concerned. They decided to ask the neighbors if they had seen Carol walking back home. And then they decided to retrace her steps, returning to the 7-Eleven, and asking the cashier, who they're familiar with, if they had seen her. He confirms that Carol did make it inside the store and bought what the sister asked for, and then he watched her leave. So they figured that she had made it home by the time they were going out to look for her and they just missed each other. However, once they arrive home, there is no sign of Carol and they're beginning to panic because they can't find her and they were never supposed to be out to begin with. And I can't even imagine what the older sister's feeling, I'm sure she's feeling a lot of guilt at this point. Finally their mom returns home and is confused to why Carol isn't home. They look at her and her instincts kicked in, something's wrong. When the mom called the police and tried to file a missing persons report. DC police told her that Carol just ran away. Her family insisted that there's no way Carol ran away. And I kinda believe them. Usually you know the patterns with your family. Carol was not the type to act out. She was doing well in school. She was really close with her family. Your family's gonna know. Later that night, they organized a neighborhood group to help look for Carol. And they searched for hours into the night. But there are still no signs of Carol. After the search, a neighbor says they saw Carol earlier walking in the direction of her house with a bag in her hand, which makes sense because she was coming back from the 7-Eleven. Sometime between that point and her front door, she was kidnapped. There was no information until May 1st when children were playing in the tall grassy area and discovered her body next to I-295 behind St. Elizabeth Hospital. Unfortunately, It was Carol. She had cuts all over her body. She had been raped before being strangled and her shoes were missing. This is when Detective Jenkins, one of the only black female detectives, dives into the case. The police inform Carol's family that her body has been found. She had been dead for about two days. She was wearing the same clothes that she was kidnapped in. Her family obviously is completely devastated and her older sister is feeling horrible. Again, I can't even imagine the guilt that she's feeling. When her autopsy report comes back, they find that she had big bruises across her hands and her face, and they concluded that she was alive for half of the time she was gone. There were also synthetic green fibers found on her body. The police went to investigate, but during this time, people were protesting the Vietnam War. Again, this is Washington, D.C., it's the 70s, so there are people all down by the White House in the Capitol, and all the police in that area were dispatched to the Capitol in the White House, leaving no one to keep up with Carol's case. Just two months after Carol's murder, on July 9th, 16-year-old Darlena Denise Johnson was walking to her summer job at Oxen Run Rec Center. Her plan was to go to work and stay at the rec center later because they were having a sleepover. At home, Darlena's mom gets a call asking when Darlena was gonna show up for work. So of course her mother's confused cause she watched her daughter walk out the door and said she was going to work. A person comes forward saying they saw Darlena in an older model black car driven by a black guy. Her mom immediately calls police and that leads nowhere. During the time that Darlina is missing, her mother is getting constant calls of someone just breathing into the phone and hanging up. She reported it, but nothing was done, and the calls continued. Later, a 911 call was made by a traffic employee who pulled over to the side of the road to fix his car when he saw a body. And get this, this was the second call that same day about this same dead body. The police drove by and said they didn't see anything, so they didn't even get out of the car to check. It wasn't until July 19th when one of the previous callers had to call the fucking police again to report the body was still there and at this point baking in the summer heat. Initially, she could not be identified because of how decomposed her body was, but it later turned out it was Darlena, whose body had been laying only 15 feet away from where Carol's body was discovered. Darlena was fully dressed and her shoes were missing. Her body was so badly decomposed, they had to cut off her fingers to identify her. And they couldn't really determine if she had been sexually assaulted or her cause of death. But the cause of death is believed to be strangulation. But check this out. The authorities had actually been tipped off a week before her body was discovered. Remember those two collars? They believe one of the collars was from the killer because he had details that only the killer would know and there's no more information after that. Obviously at this time there's no DNA testing and the only connection they have is that the victims are both black and they were dumped in the same location. So they didn't even think the cases are connected, which to me is strange because they're both found in the same area and both of their shoes are missing. I feel like that's a pretty, pretty signature mark. So the police are really dropping the ball and the fact that these are little black girls, the police really just don't care. I don't understand how you can just fucking leave a body out that's been reported multiple times. Just nine days later, on July 27th, Brenda Faye Crockett, who was just 10 years old, left her home at 8 p.m. barefoot and wearing little pink foam hair curlers. She went to pick up bread and pet food from a Safeway, a local store in the neighborhood. Which, wow, I understand this is a a different time. It's the 70s, but eight for me is a little bit too young to go to the store alone. After an hour had passed, Brenda's mom goes and looks for her. While she searches, her boyfriend and her seven-year-old other daughter stay at home just in case Brenda shows up. And around 9.20pm, they get a call, and it's Brenda. She was crying, and she was clearly scared. She said a white man had snatched her up, and they were somewhere in Virginia, but not to worry because he would call her a taxi home. Which is like... I I can't even imagine. I always say that, but it's true, like the sinking feeling you're probably having in your stomach and being a parent and being in this situation must be terrifying. So about 30 minutes later, Brenda calls back again. And this time she asks her stepfather if her mother saw her. He replies, how could she have seen you if you're in Virginia? And of course he wants to speak to the man that she's with. But the last thing Brenda said before hanging up was, well, okay, I'll see you. This was believed to be a distraction to throw police off. It's theorized that Brenda's kidnapper called because he thought that he was seen. It's also believed that the kidnapper may have known Brenda's mom and was worried she could identify him. This Only eight hours later, at 5.50 a.m., a hitchhiker discovered her petite and still warm body near U.S. Route 50. She was found fully clothed, She also had no shoes, but immaculate feet. She had been raped, and her scarf was found tightly wrapped around her small neck, and green synthetic fibers were found once again. The police were starting to believe this fiber was from a car because he had her for such a short period of time. So, at this point, the neighborhood is terrified and they're angry about the lack of progress in this investigation. They were pissed that these little girls were not being covered in the media and the police have failed to question people. The distrust and tension with police and the community only grew over the next few months. On October 1st, around 7 p.m., 12-year-old Nina Moshea Yates was walking home from a Safeway store, only a block away from her home. She was grabbing some things because her stepmom and father had just had a baby and she wanted to help out. And I know we're all just thinking, like, why are these young girls walking home alone? But it was a different time and people should feel free to be able to walk home. But when you hear stuff like this, it just makes you not want to let your children go out, your loved ones go out, or even go out yourself. And it seems like this guy is creeping around stores around the early evening because that's around where most of these little girls go missing. And a teen boy found her body just two hours after she disappeared on Pennsylvania Avenue. She was fully clothed, missing her shoes, but had clean feet. She too had been raped and strangled. Detective Jenkins was on the call once again, and I don't know if I mentioned this previously, But she's a junior detective, so she's not able to fully take over the case. She's just kind of like present. So I just wanted to make that known. Once again, they found the green fibers on this body. There was also witness report that saw Nina Moshe in a blue Volkswagen Beetle, but nothing came of it. It was at this point they finally started to think they had a serial killer and it's like, no fucking duh. And this is when they dubbed him the Freeway Phantom. There was pressure from the media and the community for the police to get off their ass and do something before another girl falls victim to this predator. Detective Jenkins said they had never encountered anything like this. And y'all gotta remember, serial killer was a new term. They didn't have John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer, or at least they weren't getting caught yet. And the term serial killer wasn't even coined until around the 80s. So the FBI gets involved in the case and starts connecting some dots, but not before another body was found. It was 18-year-old Brenda Denise Woodard who went missing on November 15th. Earlier that day, Brenda stopped at a restaurant with one of her classmates after they attended a night class. She was going to improve her typing skills. This classmate usually drove her home, but his car was being fixed and they ended up having to take the bus around 1130. That really fucking sucks, like of course the one day she doesn't get a ride, this fucking creep is out there. She got off the bus around 11.45pm and she got off on 8th street and vanished. Just six hours later, a police officer spotted her body in the grass off route 202. She had been stabbed four times, strangled and sexually assaulted. But unlike the other victims, she still had her shoes on. Police think this is because her shoes had her name on the bottom and they could be traced back to her. Her clothes were also inside out and a coat that didn't belong to her had buttons missing. She had deep defensive wounds and was the only one stabbed. Leading investigators believed she fought back hard and he stabbed her to stop her. And get this. There is a note in her pocket, written in pencil, and this is what it reads. This is tantamount to my insensitivity to people, especially women. I will admit the others when you catch me, if you can. Signed, The Freeway Phantom. See, this is the thing about naming or giving these serial killers these names. They're already narcissistic enough, and now they have notoriety, they take it and they fucking run. It was determined that the handwriting was Brenda's, and the killer forced her to write it. It is also believed that she knew her killer due to her handwriting being calm and with punctuation. She was completely unaware of the danger she was in until after the letter was written. After this case, 10 months go by without any murders, and everyone assumes that the phantom has moved away or has gotten locked up for another crime. The community begins to let their guard down. But on September 6, 1972, another body was discovered off I-295. It was 17-year-old Diane Denise Williams. She had spent the previous night with her boyfriend, and afterwards he walked her to the bus stop around 11 p.m. He waited with her to make sure she got on the bus safe, watched her get on, and waved to her as the bus pulled away. Which, that really just breaks my heart, and it's really scary. But they found her body only a few hours later. And I'm surprised that there's, there's no increased, like, police patrol or anything like that. He's still just dumping the bodies out in the open. And I don't understand how no one is hearing or seeing anything because these are again not discreet locations. So like the other victims, she was strangled and assaulted, her shoes were missing, and they found the tiny green fibers, but this time they found semen on her jeans. Initially it was believed to belong to her boyfriend, but later it came out that the samples didn't match. So finally they're starting to connect connect some dots. They're saying the location is very similar, the age of these girls are very similar, and of course the green fibers that are being found, and they're all killed in the same manner with their shoes are missing. So in 1974, the FBI finally developed a task force with about 100 detectives looking more closely to possible suspects. The first person on the list was a man who owned a teen club that Darlena went to, and this same guy was allegedly seen with her in the car. The police brought this guy in and used sodium pentothal, which if you're unfamiliar, is what the police refer to as truth serum and it's highly debated, but this unnamed man was cleared. The next man to pop up was Robert Askins. And this guy was super fucking unhinged. He was a computer technician and a former patient at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, which is where the bodies were found behind. This guy fucking served time in 1938 for poisoning five sex workers with fucking cyanide lace alcohol, and one of them died. Then, only two days later, he stabbed another sex worker to death, and he was only 19 at the time. During his arrest, he said he was a woman-hater, and they took him to a psychiatric facility to see if he was sane. While there, he broke out of his handcuffs and assaulted three healthcare workers with a chair. He was very violent, to say the least. He goes to trial, and it's revealed that he's a police informant. Instead of sending him to jail, he goes to Elizabeth Hospital. Again this is in 1939. 32 years before the crimes and where the bodies would later be discovered. He served around 13 years, and five months after he was released, he strangled 42-year-old Laura Cook in April of 1952. So obviously this guy needs to never fucking get out. He goes to court, and he's accused of this and another assault, and was convicted of second-degree murder and was supposed to serve 20 years to life. But they freed this man in 1958 because the case was overturned. This guy is leading a very sketchy life. And a detective investigates him, Detective Lloyd Davis, interviewed Robert about his involvement in another rape investigation. And after this interview, whatever he said, the police got a search warrant for his property in 1977. And inside they found a court document that included the word tantamount, which was mentioned in the letter found in Brenda's pocket. He was also known to use the word in his circle of people. And of course, this isn't a commonly commonly used word. Check out what else they found. They found a soiled women's scarf, pictures of young girls and women, and a knife that was used in another crime. They also found an essay written by a young girl, but it was unclear and they didn't mention what the essay said. So obviously alone some of these things aren't weird, but definitely the knife used in a crime and all of it together doesn't look good and it's pretty damning. And they got another search warrant and went back a month later. In the second search, they found buttons and gold earrings underneath his back seat. They also tested the fibers and hair found at the scene, but there was no evidence to tie him to these six victims. But just a few years later, he went to prison for the kidnap and rape of two women and received a life sentence. This time he actually stayed in there but he died in prison at 91 years old in 2010. Up until his death, he stayed adamant that he did not kill these girls, saying he didn't have the depravity of mind required to commit any of these crimes. Although it's unclear why, Detective Jenkins agrees and does not believe that Robert Atkins is the freeway phantom. Some theories say the killer lives in the neighborhood because two of the victims were abducted only blocks from one another. Then the killer started searching for girls outside the neighborhood so he wouldn't be caught. He is also thought to be in the military, which would explain why he killed so closely together and then would leave for periods of time. But the prime suspect was Robert Atkins. He was 52 years old. The FBI also said the killer would be above average intelligence, have a job, and he would have the skill to talk to women, but could not retain a healthy relationship. He also had to be familiar with the neighborhood in order to feel comfortable to abduct, rape, and openly dump his victims. In 1979, Detective Jenkins discovered a file on the Green Vega Rapists. They were known for kidnapping and raping women in the area. They also drove a green Chevrolet Vega, which would explain the green fibers, right? After questioning them, they pointed the police in the direction of a man who was serving time in Lorton Prison. He said he wasn't involved but knew who was, and the inmate agreed to assist police. But in turn, he asked for a shorter sentence and he wanted to remain anonymous. The police agreed because at this point, they have no information. He told police where the girls' bodies were dumped. He even told them what the girls were wearing at the time of their deaths, and he was providing details that were not in the media. So while they're driving with the inmate to find some more evidence, a politician mentioned that an inmate from Lorton State Prison was assisting the police in this freeway case. Of course, the inmate is immediately scared, and he backs out and refuses to help police after this, fearing for his own safety. After this, the police really didn't have any more crucial information to go off of, and with this gang, it kind of just ends there with them. Just when it seems like the suspect pool is drying up, another duo pops up. Those two are Tommy Simmons and Edward Sullivan. They were former cops and they were charged with murdering 14-year-old Angela Barnes. She fit the victim profile. She was black, she was 14, and her body had been found in the same area as all the previous girls. But unlike the other victims, she was shot in her back of her head. So basically they said because she was shot in the back of her head, that this does not match the MO of the killer. So therefore she was not a victim of the freeway phantom and these guys were not the freeway phantom. But being a police officer would be the perfect cover. You'd be able to hide in plain sight. You could easily get people into your car without it being alarming. There's two of them so that makes it easier, but I don't know. Once the news gets out that two ex-cops have killed Angela, the community is outraged and they're like, see, this is why we don't trust the police. After all of this, the case just goes cold. And in the 1980s, Detective Jenkins reopens the case and discovers that a few of the families got calls, just like Darlena's parents. The calls came during the time frame their daughters were missing, with the caller repeating, I killed your daughter. And then in the 1990s, Detective Jenkins wanted to use DNA to test the fibers in hair found at the crime scene, but the investigators that had the cases prior didn't keep track of the information and a lot of evidence was lost. And in 1994, Detective Romaine Jenkins retired. She said this case remains with her and that she'll never stop searching for answers as long as her heart still beats. This case ultimately wasn't a priority for the police department because the victims were black and they didn't want to use the manpower to look for their killer. So this case remains unsolved. Something positive that did come out of this is Diane's sister Patrice became a police officer and managed the child abuse squad, which I'm glad she was able to get something positive out of this horrible situation. But what do you guys think? Was it Robert Atkin, the gang, or the police? or maybe it was someone who was never caught. If you like what you hear, be sure to give us a follow at Encountering Underscore Evil on Instagram. Stay tuned. And don't forget to look behind you.